Welcome to Celebration Church's podcast. We hope this helps you to know God better and trust Him more. To learn more about Celebration Church, please visit us at celebrationchurchlive.com. I'm going to go ahead and open up that nice little bulletin that uh, you got on the way in, your your version Bible app. Uh, this is where we're going to kick off and wrap up the third part of a series we've called The 99. And we're looking at it. If you've been around church for a while, um, you're familiar with the phrase. In fact, we, we sing it in one of our favorite songs in, in Reckless Love, that, you, you, that he leaves the 99 and he goes after the one. Well, those of us who've been pursued, who've been the one, man, we're thankful that God pursues the one. Those, when we were just bumping our heads on, on, on everything, we're clueless about where we were going with life and doing doing life with God, man, God pursued us and met us where we were at. We're so thankful for that. But once we engage with God and begin to walk with God, uh, we're now, we're, we're part of the 99. We're part of the ones who are, who are staying together and staying connected. And we need to understand what it looks like to be good at being the 99. And so this series has been really for us church folk, these people who are are connected with God, who are the children of God, who have a relationship with God based on Jesus. That is what this series has been about. And if you've been coming, you're still checking church out, you're still checking Jesus out, this is very informative. It's going to help you, but the message series isn't as much to you. Um, It's really to us who are pursuing our relationship with God on a daily basis. And we've kind of jumped out with this concept that being good um, at being the 99 requires having God's heart for the one. And we should kind of already understand that because we've been in that boat. We understand it. We're thankful. Um, you know, we, we sing. It's, it's, we have one of the number one songs for a long, 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 long time. And, and I love it. It's amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. My gosh, we all were in, at that place and understand the power of God's love that while we didn't deserve anything, we weren't trying, we just knew and could feel the Holy Spirit pursuing us and drawing us into a relationship with Him, and we're so grateful for it. But sometimes we get into church life and life in God, and, and we kind of forget sometimes. And so we're talking about what it looks like to, to have God's heart for the one. And we have to be ready because we never know when God's going to begin to work in the person we least suspect may have their heart softened towards God. There are people we think, man, maybe, you know, maybe they're a good prospect. You know, they, they at least have some sort of, of place where they're trying to be kind to others and whatnot. And then we all know some people in our lives um, that are just the biggest jerks we've ever personally met. Um, and we're like, there is no way this person ever give two hoots about God or anybody else. And we know these people. Um, and then on, an, on another level through social media and through different things, we know of people that we're just like, man, there's just no way that person would ever really care about God and begin to have biases. And we never know when God is going to begin to move in somebody's life. So we've got to be ready so we can respond. Because if, if we're not ready when the response is needed, then all of a sudden, it's, it's, sometimes it's too late. And we'll give, the, we'll, give the improper, we'll give the improper response. And so 
um, my dad is here and a part of the church. And, and uh, um, anyways, he was the one who initially began to teach me how to drive a car. And so you see me driving down the road and you don't like it, blame him. So, uh, and so uh, anyways, but the, uh, anyways, um, I grew up in Odessa. My dad worked for a, a major oil company and so he had access uh, to some of these oil leases, you know, had the lease roads and, and uh, safe place. Nobody's driving around out there. So my very first driving experience, my dad takes us in the family car out to one of these lease, leases and, and sticks me behind the wheel where I'm not going to be a danger to anybody but some, you know, some mesquite bushes and that kind of stuff. And so we get in the car before he ever lets me start the car. I mean, I'm just pumped. I'm ready. I'm like, like a, a you know, 14 years old or early 15, and I'm ready to start the car, ready to take off. And, uh, man, he's like, okay, adjust your mirrors, you know. All right, get your mirrors. All right, we're sitting there. And then he starts running. The car's not even started. And he starts running me through a series of things. He's like, okay, you're going to have to scan. So put your hands, 10 to 2, 10 to 2. He says, all right, now I want you to stare, look forward. He said, I want you to look, check your gauges. Look in your side view mirror. Look in your rear view mirror. Look in your side mirror. Look in your rear view mirror. Look forward. Look at your gauges. And he's just running me through this. And I'm just sitting here going, oh, my gosh. I'm going to get car sick and it's not moving. And it's just sitting there and he's just rattling it off. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Is this what driving is about? I thought this is what driving was about. Come on now. You know, this, this was driving. What is this running through all of this stuff? And going through all these different things. So he's got me good and rattled. And then it's time to actually start the car. So we start the car. And he's like, you are not going to get over 15 miles an hour. And I'm like, okay. So we're going along. And, of course, there's some intersections. And so we come along this intersection. But it's a lease road. There are no signage. There's no stop signs. There's no anything. So we're coming up. And, and uh, coming up on an intersection, and my dad says, um, that was a stop sign. Uh, uh, okay, sure, I'm sorry, officer. And, uh, and so, you know, I'll call. So then I'm like, all right, paying attention to his cues. And I come up, and, and I'm paying, and he could tell I'm not really paying attention to my surroundings. And I go past another intersection, and he yells at me, he's like, you just killed a kid on a bike. And I'm like, oh my gosh. What is going on here? And just freaks me out. Like, there's, I'm like, we're in a pasture. There are no kids on bikes. And he's like, but you didn't even look. There could have been a kid. And I'm like, uh, sure. And so by the time it was over, man, I was, I was like, I don't even think I want to drive. And so I, I don't need to just get me a chauffeur or something. And, and so, but I was so rattled by all of that. And so, but what I didn't understand and that my dad did understand, is that I had to train myself to look to see if things were there, not to wait until it was happening. I had to notice that if, it, if I waited to look to, if, until there was a kid on a bike, it was too late. I had to be thinking about kids on bikes, whether there were kids on bikes or not. I had to be thinking about different things. I had to be thinking about oncoming traffic, whether there was oncoming traffic or not. I had to be thinking about what was happening at this intersection, whether it was controlled or not controlled, whether there was traffic or not traffic. As I was piloting that car, I had to be thinking about those things, whether or not there was anything happening. Because if I waited until something was going on, it was probably too late for me to think about it and make a plan. 
I had to be going on on the, on the front side. And for us as the children of God, there are things that the scriptures lay out for us over and over and over again. So that our hearts are ready. Because if God begins to move into some, a person that really grinds you the wrong way. That really you have a really hard time with. That they fall into that, that category. You're like, there's just no way they would ever care about God. And the Holy Spirit begins to move and do something. If you're not already ready to have a positive life-giving response with that person. All of a sudden, man, we can begin to undo what the Holy Spirit has been doing. And we have to be ready even for the person we think would, there's no way that person's ever going to be able to have any kind of relationship with God. We have to remember that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Who does he want to have a relationship with? Everybody. Every single person. Every single person. The sweetest person you've ever met and the person that disgusts you the most. He wants to have a relationship with them. He wants to bring life and restoration to them. And we have to have our hearts ready because we never know what's happening underneath the surface in somebody's heart. We have to be ready. In Luke chapter 15, verse 3, we see again that, there, that some people are irritated. That Jesus is hanging out with the wrong people. With the people that the, other, that the religious people thought, they're on the outside, they don't, we don't, they don't matter, they don't care about you. And Jesus is having these meals and having this time with these tax collectors and these sinners. And so he wants to, to get them ready for the kind of Messiah that he actually is. What he's bringing in, he's got to recalibrate these people. And he says, and then Jesus told them this parable, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulder and goes home. He doesn't say, he doesn't come up to it and say, do you have any idea what kind of a pain you are? I could have been having a good meal. I could have been sitting at home chilling. You have driven me up the wall going over hill and dale trying to find you. No, it's joyfully brings it home. Doesn't chew it out. Doesn't like look at it sideways all the way. I can't believe you saw a sheep. No, he's not what he's that is not what he is doing. He joyfully, joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. I love that picture. So many times we would want to have to make make the lost sheep undo every step that it took when it walked away. You're going to walk, you're going to march yourself all the way back to where you ought to be. And the shepherd picks it up and makes those steps on behalf of that sheep. Ugh, God is so good. And he lost sheep, and then, let me find my place. And he goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. He is making a request. I want you to rejoice with me. I want you to be excited about this. I want you to, to, to be <clears throat> throwing a party with me on this. I want you to be pumped about this. 
Folks, we're the ones he wants to celebrate alongside with. He says, I tell you that in the same way there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. See, God rejoices when people come to him, and, and heaven rejoices when people come to him. When people respond, when they finally make that connection, he rejoices, heaven rejoices. And folks, you and I, we need to be a part of that rejoicing. Being, being part of the 99 means that we throw parties for people nobody else would throw parties for. That we're the ones celebrating a life change when everybody else is saying, mm-hmm, prove it. That we're the ones saying, oh, praise God, all it takes is that shift in the heart. And I tell you, the rest of it will take care of itself. But we're going to celebrate from the very moment. We're not going to place a bunch of weight on somebody that, they, that God doesn't place on them. Again, we revisit this idea that he goes home and he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be re more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 persons who do not need to repent. This concept of rejoicing, this concept of parties, is something that Jesus uses over and over again as a backdrop for miracles and ministry and his teaching. Jesus uses this party atmosphere over and over again. Now, you have to understand, you know, in our culture, all these years later, uh, folks, we are incredibly wealthy. Incredibly wealthy. If somebody was to just peek through time from this time period and see our daily lives, they would be blown away at just the ease and the, I understand we have our own problems and we've got our own issues and I get that. But from the, from the world scope and history scope, we're blessed. And man, we have parties all the time. We have parties for everything. Man, my, my kids at school have parties for everything. There's a pizza party, a cupcake party, all sorts of parties. I'm like, man, we just partied all the time. So I said, when do you do schoolwork? And so, well, there's just parties. We just, we're used to them. But folks, with the people that were hearing this, parties were rare. Parties were special. They revolved around something really huge, like somebody's wedding, or, or only super, super rich people who were able to not just provide food for themselves and their family, which most people busted their rear all day long, all week long, just to eke out a living, just to take care of their own family. This was somebody wealthy enough to put out a spread for other people to come and enjoy. These things were rare, and people wanted to be a part of parties. They were a rare, rare, rare thing. And Jesus uses this context. And we, we read through the scriptures. And if we, it's so prevalent in Jesus' teaching, we can begin to make it look like it's more like our modern culture. Like, oh, yeah, they always go out to dinner. Oh, yeah, they always have everybody over for a barbecue. Oh, they always do that. No, they did not. It was not that way all the time. This was, Jesus was trying to create a framework, a mindset and these people that, because so many times the enemy has created this picture of our Heavenly Father as this angry, mean, critical being that just is not about fun and joy at all. And Jesus used a party atmosphere over and over and over again to help recalibrate and say, that isn't what we're about at all. 
That is not what we're about at all. We're about joy. In fact, Jesus' first miracle is done at a wedding. And it, it happens because they ran out of wine. And this was not Baptist wine, folks. It had alcohol in it. This was legit wine. In fact, the, the, the guy who's running the bank goes to the groom. The groom has no idea that this miracle has even happened. And all of a sudden he says, you know, most people bring out the good wine at the beginning. And then when everybody's well drunk, and that means they're drunk, that you bring out the cheap wine because nobody cares anymore. And he says, but you have saved the best for last. You've saved the best for the end. And all of a sudden, this groom has no idea why he's getting all these compliments. Because Jesus turns water into wine. Into really good, noticeably amazing wine. And this, is, this was Jesus' first miracle. Because the, there was a party and they needed the refreshments. To be able to do this. That was what was the culture. That it was going to be an embarrassment to this family. That to have run out of wine at this point in the, in the, in the, in the fest. In the feast of old. I don't even know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. It was a, it was a miracle. It does its first miracle at a wedding. I love that when Jesus brings Matthew in as one of his disciples. The first thing he does with Matthew is have a dinner party. Doesn't invite him to a prayer meeting. Doesn't sit him down and said, okay, I need to get you caught up. I need you to get up to speed on, on, on this part of the scriptures. The first thing he does is sit down with him. And then people just start showing up. Word gets out that there is a lit party happening over here at, with Jesus in the tent. And people just start showing up. You don't believe me? Let's look at this. Matthew 9. Verse 9, it says, And Jesus went on from there, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. I won't rework all this. You can get it on the podcast, but tax collectors were not liked. And Jesus meets him in his place of work. He's sitting at his tax collector's booth doing his work everyone hates him doing. Everyone despises on him. And he meets him right there and says, Come and follow me. And Matthew got up, and he left his job and left his security and he followed Jesus. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, he says, come up and follow me. And then they go and they go to Matthew's house and they begin to have dinner. It says, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. This wasn't a quiet little intimate gathering. Many people start showing up at this party, at this dinner party. And that was how Jesus began his very first discipleship steps with his newest recruit Matthew was just to begin to sit down and have this place of dinner and it just began to turn into a party and of course you get down to verse 11 and the Pharisees they're mad again they're like he's eating with tax collectors and sinners again and everybody gets upset because they want Jesus to be a little more religious and, and stiff and Jesus is kicked back at having dinner and imparting life and doing life with his disciples. Then we can move to Matthew 22. And Jesus is wanting people to understand what the kingdom of heaven is like. What's the kingdom of heaven like? He uses this example. He spoke to them again in parables saying the kingdom of heaven is this is what it's like. It's like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Heaven 
is like a king who threw an amazing party. Let that begin to change the way we see our heavenly father in heaven. That's what it's like. It's like this king with all his amazing resources and all his amazing authority. He didn't wage war. He didn't make a new law. He threw a party. That is what heaven is like. Then there are those begin to see this party thing. And we see in Luke's gospel in chapter 13, verse 23, it won't be on the screen, but they said, Lord, are only a few going to make it into heaven? As soon as people get into, in on this party thing, then they're like, okay, well, what, what makes a good party is not just who's invited, but who's not invited. You know, the real parties are the party where it's only the special few. That are be able to get in. You got the you got the bouncer with the little velvet rope, and he don't let everybody in. And then you walk up, and you uh, flash the invitation, and he, come on in, sir. Get back, get back. And you walk in. They wanted heaven to be that kind of party. So there are only a few going to get in. Well, of course they wanted it to be them. I'm going to be part of the few. I don't want to be on the outside of this deal. But come on, Jesus, let's, let's just keep this a very, a very intimate gathering. Let's, let's keep this nice and tight, and we, we don't want everybody in. And Jesus comes in and uses that to not talk about, initially, how many are going to get in. He says, no, here's the, here's the question you need to wonder, how do you get in? He says, you've got to enter in through the narrow gate. You've got to enter in through me. This isn't about who's out and who's in. The question is, is what's the door? That's what this is about. Quit worrying about who's out and who's in and worry about what, what, what's the way in. And Jesus began to teach her that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He begins to teach on that. And then he begins to break their brains and says in verse 29, people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. They're coming from everywhere. You want to know who, if, if it's a few or a little getting in? It says they're coming north, east, west. We can't even say what cities are. They're just coming from the globe, and they're just coming in. He began to say, but they're coming in through Jesus. That is what this is about, and he uses this. Luke 14 starts, starts with another dinner party on, on the Sabbath in Luke 14. 1. It says, when Jesus went to eat the house of a prominent Pharisee. See, he didn't just eat with the tax collectors and sinners. He with the people that bad-mouthed him, too. He with the, the, with, the, with the prominent Pharisee. And he was being carefully watched. Boy, they were just sitting there, and Jesus was like, I'm cool. I can hang with you. I can eat with you, too. I know you're kind of looking sideways at me, but I, I, can, I can come to your party, too. And then in verse 7, it says, And when he had noticed that the guests picked the places of honor at the table. He told them another parable. He said, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may be invited. And he says, so go ahead and just, just be chill about it. Take just the low seat if somebody wants to promote you and do that. But otherwise, don't try to make yourself more and you end up getting embarrassed. And, and uses this concept of parties and feasts. Over and over and over again. 
He goes on in Luke 14 and tells another story about a party. In verse 15, he says, And when one of those at the table with him heard this, he, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. And again begins to go into another story that was framed in a party, framed in a banquet. Then Luke 15 gets into the most controversial party that we see. In Luke chapter 15, later on is is when, of course, we see that there are the different parables being told. The parable of the 99, the one in the 99, the parable of the coins, and then the parable of the two sons. And we call it the prodigal son story and and that the son goes off and spends all this all the his dad's wealth and the inheritance and he just is a complete idiot and then he finally he comes back and is there and he's ready to just go to work just get hired by dad that's all I want I just want a job let me sweep the floors and I'll be okay and dad responds he responds with party and let's look in verse 22 it says but the father said to the servants quick Bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. See, I love it that the dad already had a plan. He was hoping this day would come. The son who had embarrassed the family, when he comes home, guess what? I know right where the robe is. It's ready. The ring, it's ready. He didn't have to describe it. He had always already done. The calf had been fed and fattened. It was ready for the feast. He's not scrambling. Everything is in order. And they can throw an amazing party at the drop of a hat. Because the father had already processed everything. And was ready for this unlikely moment in everybody's eyes. But as as his son comes in, he begins to respond. He says, let's have a feast and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Three weeks in a row this has done this. For he's lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. So the party's happening. But then verse 25 happens. It says, meanwhile, the older son, the one who stayed, the one who did what he was supposed to do, was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. This turned into a real party. People are dancing. People are excited. And he hears the music and the dancing. And this is the pivotal moment in this story. And for this guy, for those who are familiar with it, he begins and he doesn't respond in a good way. He doesn't want to go in. And he's super upset. He's super upset. And folks, this has been happening for a long, long time. That those who are on the outside and way on the outside, we just don't see how, how God can begin to move. And see, we cannot let someone's recent past determine their immediate future. We're people who we tend to like gaps. Okay, Something happened a long, long time ago. And we're like, okay, you know, cool, there's been a place of restoration. Or something just happens and there's this place and then we're like, okay, let's give it some time. But we see 
that God begins to pour out love and grace in this amazing, beautiful way. In this amazing, beautiful way. And so many times we can let things begin to determine. And we have a moment in Acts as early church that I think we need to learn from. Let's go ahead and if you're not familiar with Paul. Um, Paul wrote a big, the biggest chunk of the New Testament. His, his name before it got changed to Paul was Saul. And in uh, Acts chapter 8 verse 3 we says that Saul began to destroy the church. That's some strong language. He began to destroy the church. He was there with the first martyr and, and guarding the coats. He approved of them killing uh, of, of Stephen. Uh, and so when he was going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and he put them into prison. This is a little bit of who, who Saul was. Then in Acts chapter one verse, uh, chapter 9 verse 1, it says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's people, and he went to the high priest, and he asked for letters to the synagogue in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So he's still breathing out murderous threats. He has a letter that allows him that's basically an ar a religious arrest warrant, and he ends up on the way to Damascus. On the way to Damascus to go arrest people, he has this encounter with Jesus. And he has this Damascus Road experience. And he sees a blinding light, and, and, and Jesus speaks to him, and, and he begins to respond. And he finds out that he's the one who's called to carry the gospel to the Gentiles and, and to those who are not Jewish. But on the, on the, at the end of this deal, he can't see. He can't see. He's blinded. And then, but he's there on the road to Damascus. So God always moves through people, so it's not surprising that we pick up in verse 10. It says, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. So here is one who's part of the 99. Ananias is a good guy. He loves Jesus in a time when, when that was new and fresh, and Ananias had embraced Jesus, who he was, and he was a disciple. And so God immediately wants to hook this new believer, <clears throat> Saul, Paul, up with the local church. So they're in a, the Lord called to Ananias in a vision and said, Ananias. And Ananias knows what's up. He says, yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named Tar ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. God's speaking, he says, Saul's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias. There's Ananias, it's the right guy. Come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. How cool is this? He's, he's been told by name it's going to be be able to be the, the one who's going to come and, and lay hands on him, and you're going to be, be a part of a miracle. Man can't see, and all of a sudden he's going to be able to see. And Ananias knows it's God talking to him. And you think Ananias is like, bam, I'm in. This is awesome. Immediately, Ananias begins to argue. Lord, Ananias answered, he, he is having a divine vision from God. And God is speaking directly to him, and Ananias is still hanging on 
to alternate information. We do this on so many levels. We do this on so many levels. So-and-so said, I've read, the doctor said, oh my goodness, there's so many places. He says, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. He's having a conversation with God through a vision. He's like, yeah, I know you want me to go and have this miraculous encounter and let let him have his sight, but I just got to give you a heads up of what he's doing, God. I've heard, maybe you don't know. He was relying more on what he had heard. We do this all the time. Help us, Lord. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest. He's talking to the person of all authority, and he's concerned about the authority of somebody else. Ananias was a good guy, folks. He's handpicked by God. Ananias is awesome. Let's not pick on him. Let's not be too hard on Ananias. He's handpicked by God. He's an awesome guy. He's in the scriptures. But folks, he has the same problems with walking with Jesus that you and I do. We weigh out what other people have to say. We weigh out what other authorities we have to deal with may think. We weigh out reports and what we've heard and what we've read through other things. And even though God is speaking to us directly to do one thing, we dig our heels in and say, but I've heard. We're never going to be able to move forward until we hold God's word above anything else. It says, but the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Go. Go. So he goes and he prays for him. and Man, Paul ends up on a really rough encounter. Nobody wants to have anything to do with him. A guy named Barnabas ends up coming along and really kind of adopting him when everybody else is skeptical of him. He immediately begins to preach. It's the scripture say, Acts says, uh, Paul immediately begins to preach and declare what God has done in his life. But man, the believers are super skeptical because he was a notorious persecutor of the church. He was notorious. Now, folks, recently on a really low-key scale, really low-key scale, nothing threatening like this, nothing like somebody trying to throw us in jail or any of that, but on a really low-key scale, the church as a whole this past fall got to have a little moment when a man named Kanye West released an album called Jesus is King. Kanye West has been around and in the public eye and has done a lot of things and has a lot of things. He's said a lot of things, tweeted a lot of things, done a lot of things that don't line up with the scriptures. But begin to decree, hey, um, I believe in who Jesus is and, and I want my life to begin to make that. And folks, my heart was broken as... Person after person, if it, I don't know if it was you or not, so I'm not picking on anybody. I, I, didn't, I have no idea. How, but the believers as a whole were not applauding and throwing a party the way we were called to throw a party. We were not. We should have said, yes, Kanye, come on, buddy. Come on, buddy, we're for you. 
And it was believers who began to side-eye him and look at him and push him out and say, Oh, we'll, we'll hide and watch. We'll see. Let's see what you're made of. Let's see what you're made of. Let's see where this goes. When guess what? He steps over from death to life. And I don't know if he's a believer or not. I don't know. But I sure hope so. I, I am on that side. He says he's a believer in Christ. I'm like, bless God. Let's do this. And guess what? We're praying for revival in this nation. And the best way to do it is to have people who've been running fully the wrong way go, Whoa, Jesus is real and run fully the other direction. That's where revival comes from. That's where it comes from. It comes from you and I being who we're called to be and it making a difference in other people's lives. And guess what? That's where it comes from. And you and I, we have to be ready. And there are going to be people that God, in answer to our prayers, is going to be moving on people's lives that we just didn't expect. And they're going to have an audience and they're going to be able to have a platform and they're going to be able to speak to people you and I could never speak to. And we have to go, you know what? If truth is coming off their lips right there, we've got to amen it. Now, that doesn't mean we have to rubber stamp anything they ever say from that point forward. But when they say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, we have to do that. And on his album, he knew that and there's this, this song that the lyrics are, ah, he's so aware. It's a song called Hands On. And he says, uh, what have you been hearing from the Christians? They'll be the first one to judge me. Make it seem like nobody loved me. I'm not trying to lead you to visas, but I'm just trying to lead you to Jesus. They called, <clears throat> we get called halfway believers, only halfway read Ephesians. Only if they knew what I knew, I was never new until I knew of the true and living God, Yeshua. The true and living God, somebody Please pray for me. Somebody please pray for me. It says that multiple times. Please just pray for me. Here is a new guy, new believer. Even being compassionate with him. He's honest in his song, honest in his art. But he, he just ends it with just please pray for me. Another part of it says I get it. I get it that you know that you know you're skeptical. He said but just please pray for me. Please pray for me. Folks, we're never going to be good at being the 99 until we're able to just amen what God begins to do in people's lives. And I know it's, I know it's hard sometimes, especially when people have been destructive. And, and we see it with Ananias. I mean, it was, it was hard for people to embrace Paul. It was hard for them to embrace Paul. But I tell you what, you and I are certainly thankful. Every one of us who are not Jewish, we're thankful for Paul, for that notorious guy who got gloriously saved. We're thankful. It's changed our lives. See, our bottom line is our God is so glorious that he saves the notorious. That is it. Folks, we diminish our God when we shorten his reach. We diminish him. We say, eh, that's probably not legit. Man, I'm telling you what, I'm believing for just people to get radically saved all over the place. You know what? There are going to be porn stars preaching, bless God. There are going to be people who, who are, have lived all sorts of messed up lives. And they're going to be preaching the goodness and the grace of Jesus. 
That's the only way this is going to be. That it's going to have. It's not just all of us hold up having religious ceremonies. It's about living lives set free, and celebrating when other people get set free. That's the way this changes. The way it happens. The truth is that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, and I've gone way long. Thank you for letting me do that. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Celebration Church. We hope you'll stay connected by following us online. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.